if I can, if I can share something that was helpful for me, so I wouldn't be angry anymore, or if I can share something about how I navigate my mixed faith marriage and that provides some value, or when I did my TEDx talk to walk people through the experience of an existential uh, dark night of the soul faith crisis in such a way that it would be safe even for a believing member to watch that so that mm -hmm. they could better understand what some of their family and friends have gone through. Um, to me, I find meaning in participating in those things. We've uh, engaged online uh, for over a year now, right? We started in uh, the restoration table when it was more active. Um, and I just wanted to have a conversation with Marty. I, I think she's very thoughtful and there's conversations that I think that are worth having that she's participating in as well. Well, I guess I can kind of go into just different phases that I feel like I've been in. Like when I first left, I felt like I was crazy and something was wrong with me, uh, found Mormon stories. And it was just really comforting to see that I wasn't the only one and the things that I was going through were, um, normal. <laughs> and then, um, I did feel like there was kind of this pendulum swing. I kind of went through an angry phase. I guess I just found myself trying wanting to kind of come back to somewhere in the middle of being a little bit more objective about the way I view the church, um, and the way I view even the ex-Mormon world too, like what's the purpose of life type stuff. If it's, um, if it's not this narrative that I've been told my whole life, what is it? And, uh, there's a lot of people talking about that online. So anyway, it was just kind of like that next step after maybe coming down off of like an angry phase and like, well, how do I have a fulfilling life now? Kind of a thing. And how do I help others? A huge thing is relationships. Like I feel really strongly that you don't have to like cut off relationships. Um, that uh, you can be resilient in your relationships too. Like, I, I, and I don't know if maybe I've, I've had the thought, maybe it's just my personality and maybe what I have to offer isn't for everybody because they don't have my exact personality and it's not going to work for them in their family situation. But it's, there are things I've been able to do that I feel like could be transferred if you're willing to do it. So I think that possibly uh, when people share the books that have been most helpful for them, that maybe gives us insight as to what they were unpacking during the phase after the crash and then how they've reconstructed meaning to mm -hmm. things. And so if I were to ask you, I, I know I'm just popping this question right now, but um, without any preparation, if, if you were to list some of the books that were most helpful for you early on, and that then you still find meaning now, what would be some of the ones that were helpful initially? And then eventually you'd still keep them in your top 10 or top five? Um, top ones, definitely Jonathan Heights. Um, book The Righteous Mind. Yeah, that one was huge. Um, 
Maps of Meaning from Jordan Peterson, and that one's a slog. I also watched his uh, course online that he taught to his class. That one's, I feel like, for me, easier to consume because I I'm, I have a hard time reading. Audiobooks are better, but having mm -hmm. a, a video is also helpful, too. Um, I'm trying to think of other ones. Brene Brown's, I really liked her book. Um, I'm uh, basically... Also the Heart or um, Braving Bra the Wilderness? Braving braving the wilderness yeah. so if you if you listen to my very first episode on my podcast I'm covering the same books I don't feel like I've moved that much from when I started my podcast because I think I've kind of I kind of already went through some of those phases and I not that I feel like you should ever be completely stable <laughs> but they I just think I came across those books as being kind of they have a lot of wisdom in them that I think is pretty timeless I guess yeah so makes sense Trying to think of other books. I really, really loved David Osler's book. Bridges. Mm -hmm. So did your did your husband? Does he did he process the same things the same way as you? Or no? I mean, there's de there's definitely similarities, but he he really loves Alan Watts. That's been like a huge um, sage for him. I don't know what else you want to call it. Uh, I'm trying to think of other things that he oh there was another book the sin of certainty by peter ends that one was yeah. a restoration to table book that i really enjoyed that one like i was like i wish i could go to church with this guy <laughs> yeah i found uh, a lot of value in the biblical scholarship and the things uh yeah. because the the scriptures became a lot more interesting to me when they weren't being used to support a dogmatism when it was just trying to understand what the writers were trying to attend, trying to do based on the circumstances that they were in and yeah. what was meaningful to them in the time. Yeah. That's something I feel like I never learned how to do when I grew up in the church. The thing I, scriptures were always used to reinforce what we already knew to be true. Like if that makes it, like I never learned how to read. I never even learned how to read a scripture in a way where I'm trying to analyze how I could use it for today. Like I heard it a lot at church, but I never practiced that, if that makes sense. So I'm I'm not, I'm assuming people at church are doing what I'm saying that I didn't do. <laughs> but I never but I never learned it at church. Like I don't know. So how would you approach <laughs> scriptures before? I would learn something from like an institute teacher that was in a class setting, like an aha for me. And then I'd go start reading the scriptures and find that in the scriptures. Does that make sense? Yeah. So versus, which isn't a bad thing. I think when you get like an aha moment or something like that, that's something that is meaningful to you, whether you learn it from somebody else or from the scriptures, but the scriptures were never like a tool for me to have an aha moment. Like, I don't know that I ever read the scriptures like that. Like, for example, if you're reading the story of Cain and Abel, you're probably not Abel in the story. <laughs> That's not going to help you very much. Right. You you have to see how that spirit of Cain is manifesting in your life and, and then try to mitigate that. Like that's to me now, that's what the scriptures are. Not, and not in a self-hating way either. Like, just in a like, wow, I can kind of see this popping up here. Maybe I'm not being fair to 
someone I'm having a bad relationship with, or maybe I should see it from their perspective or, you know, whatever it is that, but I don't know if that makes sense, but. So one thing that I've noticed is for people that have a very strong enmeshment of their identity with their beliefs and everything else, when they experience a existential faith and identity crisis, everything crumbles on them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I've seen you talk about how people's attribution of meaning to er to everything crumbles. And so they, um, they latch on to something trying to find new certainty. And so they politically shift, they philosophically shift, they, their moral frameworks all shift on everything. And it seemed to me in, in our discussions that we've had and what I've seen you do and how you participate is um, there was, there was some of the framework of how you, through which you viewed life and made sense of things. It seemed like it didn't all crumble. Is, is that fair to say? Like you kept some of your paradigms in your framework with regard to philosophy, relationships, politics, and things like that, where some other people, they just have all of that crumble at the same time. Maybe. Um, I I know that the three years before the big collapse of belief, and I think there's a difference between when I stopped believing, but and that's not even the right word for it, there was a moment where I could no longer honestly say, I know the church is true. And, and I can remember that moment. And then there was another moment where I lost my loyalty to the organization, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There was a moment where that collapse happened. And the first collapse wasn't like I've, I've identified it looking back. Right. And so it's really hard to know. I wish I could have asked that person that day if they would have been honest with me, like, did anything happen here? Or am I just remembering it that way? You know what? It's it's hard. I just, I remember having the thought of, I don't, I'm not being consistent. I don't believe in supernatural stuff anywhere except for here where Joseph Smith claimed supernatural events. Like, and I realized that I had that difference. Um, and I just remember feeling like there's a way I can still participate, honestly. Um, but basically, I came to the conclusion it doesn't matter. <laughs> like, that's not the point of church. The point of church is like uh, being like Jesus Christ, you know, like, so that that part of me, I don't think has the language around it has changed. But I still believe that I should become like Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is becoming the best version of myself, which is, I, I don't think I would have disagreed with before. I still believe that now. So remind me what the, the shift or the trigger was, was it church history or a shift of belief in God or. It was a gradual thing. I was listening. Um, I was listening to a debate between Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson. They were talking about truth. <laughs> And I don't know what they said, but it made me, I just, I was, I just remember that's where I was when it happened. Like, that's when I had the thought of, 
I don't think I believe Joseph Smith did what he said he did. During that three years, I wouldn't say it's so hard to describe. I just, I remember just little moments. Like I remember having a moment where I wanted to call my brother who claims to be agnostic and I wanted to call him and talk to him. And I didn't feel like I could unless I talked to my husband first. And I'm really grateful that I had that instinct because um, this would have been way harder if I had gone down this path without him. <laughs> like I just, I'm grateful that I had the realization. I, the, I think the reason I was afraid to do anything until I talked to him first is because I realized that if I didn't talk to him first, it was going to be much worse. <laughs> and then reading saints is when I realized the church was biased so you, and, when you read the text and the footnotes and they didn't really fit together and this is polished. I just, it's just the first time I realized the church wasn't on like objective truth side that, that they had their own bias. Like I just, I thought the church was equals objective truth. Even, even with all those doubts, like I still felt like I still had faith or hope or faith's the wrong word. I still hoped that the church was still the closest thing to truth. And so in reading saints, I realized that, oh, they have their own bias. And I was like, well, if that's the case, then I, I, in order to get to the truth, I'm going to have to listen to some critics. So that's when I found the CS letter. And that's when I'd say the, the my loyalty collapsed after reading that. So hmm. And did your husband read that at the same time? Um, I don't think he did, actually. Um, I kind of thought, like, I was talking to him as I was going through all of it. And so I kind of thought he was reading it, too. But I found out that he wasn't um, kind of after. I'm trying to think of, he was only willing to read stuff from faithful sources. So I think when he had his collapse it was reading brian hale's website learning about the partridge sisters was yeah that was his moment a little bit different than mine but interesting but both of your moments were reading from what are considered faithful sources oh sure like i don't think we'd be here had they not published it so good on the church for being at least that much more transparent right <laughs> Yeah. I also don't think it would have happened had I not been reading the original sources and then seeing how they were presenting what. So it was basically me looking at the original source and from my own judgment saying, well, this is kind of what I think is happening here. And then seeing how they were painting it in the saints. I was like this. I just, I realized what I found to be kind of the more, reasonable explanation was not the same explanation they were painting so yeah i experienced that too um at one point for some reason i read doctrine and covenants 137 on the joseph smith papers project and it's a longer revelation than what's in the doctrine and covenants uh -oh. and the reason is is because they edited out prophecies that joseph smith gave that were false oh i didn't know that yeah yeah like uh in dnc 137 if you look it up on joseph smith papers project he prophesied that brigham young would go teach 
to the indigenous peoples in their language. And that multiple of the then currently constituted Quorum of the Twelve would go and do certain things and be faithful forever. But that was before the Kirtland apostasy and oh. they left. And so like there's multiple things in the original revelation that were are demonstrably not true, but what got canonized was editing out what's actually what was actually recorded. Wow. Yeah. So and then probably editing other things that could possibly not be true later on. Like they probably like if it hadn't happened yet. Yeah. I'm sure they I'm sure they were like, ooh, can't say stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Like they're not going to publish, they're not going to publish the, I mean, you can go find them, the patriarchal blessings of a lot of the early leaders that say really crazy things like, I can't remember, it might, it might be Heber C. Kimball's patriarchal blessings said that he would have the capacity to travel to the moon so he could teach the gospel to the people there in his patriarchal blessing, things like that, you know, we don't, we don't learn those in Sunday school uh, or even yeah. religion or institute classes, but. Right. Yeah. Well, I was, I was really interested in having conversation about the things that you do and why you do them and what value you find in them. Uh, at, at, in my, the, my podcast is, based on the premise that there's a lot of deconstructive material out there, like to study what we've, the things that we've just been talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then the content out there that's post deconstruction, after you've tried to figure out what everything means, what are you going to do next with your life? Um, it seems to me like most of the reconstructive content out there tends to be prescriptive, like, the Faith Matters Foundation is prescriptive, or Dan Witherspoon's Mormon Matters, but now it's not Latter-day Faith, tends to be a little bit more prescriptive, like this is how you should build your life after. Hmm. And I wanted to have discussions with people without having it be prescriptive, like this is how you need to do it, but rather have conversations with people about what they're doing after a faith transition and, and what are they doing that's reconstructive so that listeners and viewers can kind of join people in those conversations and then decide for themselves what are they going to do going forward. And yeah, I like that. Thanks. And um, like one thing that you do is you've been involved in these three practices circle groups that are very interesting to me. And I've seen you lean into difficult conversations. Uh, that most most people would experience them as being uncomfortable. Uh, and I've seen you um, clearly disagree with people in conversations um, and leaning into those kinds of things. And it seems to me that a lot of people don't seek that out. They They tend to want to participate in echo chambers, you know, Listen to right. listen to content, participate in conversations, you know, only with people that are part of their conceptual framework. Um, so I was wondering if you could first talk about, 
I mean, I see you do that. Is that is that accurate that you tend to lean into challenging conversations? I, yeah, yes. And I, I would say it's because I don't, I'm not sure how well I do it, but I know that those are the conversations I wanted to listen to. And like, there's, it's very rare <laughs> that you can find it. Um, but yeah, those, I'm more interested in having someone defend what they believe in the strongest sense. Cause what I don't see a lot of cre content creators really anywhere. And maybe you could correct me. Maybe I'm just not thinking of them, but I will say, I, I think it's fair to say the vast majority don't, they don't represent the strongest of the other side. Um, they don't steal a man. Right. And maybe it's because they don't even understand like maybe they're not doing it on purpose. Like I can sometimes when you throw out steel man, straw man, I feel like it's a, it's a way to say, Oh, see, this is my opponent. And they're not intellectually honest because they propped up the straw man. Right. And I don't think it's necessarily that kind of intention. I think it's, it's really hard to represent the strongest opinions on both sides, especially when you don't hold one of those. <laughs> so it's just, it's just not easy to do without, someone that believes it in the room with you so yeah i think of the the pangburn uh debates with yeah. uh harrison peterson and they they both seem to do a fairly good job presenting the strongest argument of the other but even then i don't think jordan peterson I listen to him more than Sam Harris and I Sam Harris might be guilty of this too, but I don't think Jordan Peterson is always, he'll say the strongest opinion, the strongest of the other side, but it's only in passing. Like, I feel like I really don't think Jordan Peterson is doing a very good job of that, especially with, uh, especially when he's talking about more of the anti-woke stuff. Cause my guess is that someone that is woke was just listening to him and saying, you have no idea what I believe, but I do think Jordan Peterson does understand that I've heard him advocate for, uh, well, for lack of a better word, like marginalized people. And like, if, Hey, if you don't address this, it's a problem. Uh, I don't even know how to, I don't know how to summarize. I, I wish I could remember, but he is, Part of the reason I've moved left is because of some things that he's said, he's said that I'm like, that's true. Like, for example, if you have inequality in your society to the point where it's unstable, unstable, then that's, that's a problem. Um, I think about um, the perpetuation of problems in lower socioeconomic class. So you get someone who their parents don't really participate in their education. Their level of literacy is lower. By the time they're in fifth or eighth grade, they're so far behind everybody else that they're likely to be among those who drop out of school. Mm -hmm. If they drop out of school, then that in high school, then that diminishes their economic opportunities. Right. Um, and then, and then they perpetuate the cycle because they have kids maybe sooner uh, or multiple kids or maybe if the woman gets pregnant, 
you know, after the first or second one, she decides to have an abortion over the third one or something. And it just ends up being a, 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 a cycle of issues. Um, and education supposedly supposed to be the, um, at public education supposed to be the thing that provides opportunities so people can raise socioeconomic class like an e equalizer of opportunity. Sure. But, but sometimes people start so far behind that they don't, you know, there'll be some standouts that are able to do it, but it makes it very difficult. And then you get a system where um, with globalization, robotics, technology, access to capital, leverage, and things like that, that um, the entrepreneurs, the investors are able to, you know, double their wealth every seven to 10 years or, or even shorter periods of time. And over an extended period of time, when you add that, it, it, we end up today with significant disparities. Um, and it's true that some kid, you know, born to a mom that has three kids and there's no dad in the home and she's working. I mean, there are going to be some standouts that are going to fall in love with reading Harry Potter and they're going to learn how to read. And then they're going to be able to increase their socioeconomic status. But that seems to be an outlier. And then you get into the circumstances that we're in and how do you fix those? How do you address the problems? I don't even know if, how you fix them. Because right. I don't like bureaucracies. I don't like government bureaucracies and I don't like corporate bureaucracies either. Um, uh, and so you debate these unanswerable, like how do you solve these problems? Because the more the disparity, the more the disproportionate influence power the more you, you end up with the MAGA movement, right? You have a lot in the middle class that have been hammered for decades and they're absorbing, they were the ones that got hurt the most. The middle class got hurt the most in the financial crisis. They were the ones who lost their job, had to cash out their 401ks. So, so when the market rebounded, they didn't get the rebound. They were the ones who lost their homes when they lost their jobs, they're the ones where health insurance for a family used to cost 400 bucks. And now it's like 2,800 bucks, which suppress their wages. Um, and so a lot in the middle class are going to be angry. They're going to be angry mm -hmm. at immigration, globalization, you name it. Um, but all, I don't know that that's going to change anything. Right. So, cause it just gets people elected to blame it on the millionaires and billionaires on the left and then to blame it on the government on the right and, and the elite class. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. And uh, yeah, that's tough. I didn't plan on having this conversation, but I think it's relevant to the overall, what do you do with your life and what are the things that you're interested in after you go through a faith transition? It's part yeah. of it. Yeah. Right. No, it totally is. 
so you have these three three practice circle groups. Talk a little bit about what those are like. Yeah. So um David Osler actually introduced me to that organization. And he for a while, for several months, we tried to do our own three practice uh Mormon themed. So our framing questions would be something like this is why I left the church or something. And we tried to invite both sides to come and participate. Um, they weren't well attended. And so uh, David Osler decided to move his time resources to other projects. And I just stayed and hung around with the, the bigger three practice group. Um, and went through my ref training and I, as a ref, I think to tell you a little bit more about the organization, I think the, so Jim Henderson and Jim Hancock, they had thought about starting the organization as a nonprofit, but they decided that they want something that benefited people enough that it was worth paying for, that it would self-sustain. They wouldn't have to ask for donations. And so they market it to organizations. So like if you're in some management and stuff, they use it as a tool for management to be able to have someone go through training and then, you know, and within organizations, they can have conversations. And so they look at it as a tool. And so they teach people how to use this tool and then they, and then people pay to go through training, uh, ref training. And so because I went through that ref training with the help of, David Osler, I already had the training and I just, I really like the idea of personally participating with people that disagree with me. And it's a pretty, it's probably like a nine to one ratio as far as political leanings. <laughs> so most people that are there are left of center and would identify as left of center. Um, maybe even more than nine to 10. Um, I'm definitely the most conservative one that is regular regularly posting um posting uh circles and so personally that's why i participate i feel like it's important to not be in echo chambers so that's my effort to just self-improve myself um learning how to listen to people that disagree with me and um yeah, and it's a pretty powerful tool. So the three practices, actually, I have a script right here. I can tell you what they are. So when you First, post a circle, you're announcing a, a Zoom meeting, basically. Right. Yeah, and you have to register. Right. And so if you go to threepractices.com slash upcoming circles, you can go see the public ones that are available, and you just register. And yeah, and then you can join the conversation. Um, but the whole point of it, this is the, the point of three practices is to practice these three things. I'll be unusually interested in others. I'll stay in the room with difference and I'll stop comparing my best with your worst. It's really cool to see in action when you have actually two different viewpoints in the same room. And, and that's when you get to see how good the tool works. And I, it's pretty cool. So. so it is like a street epistemology tool where you're talking about a little bit where you're at, what would cause you to move one way or another? Or... Not, no, not quite. Um, it's a little bit 
it's it's a little bit more free flowing than that, but then at the same time, it's a little bit more structured. So more free flowing in that the topic can be whatever the volunteer decides to talk about. So someone so will volunteer an, to respond. Give us an example of one that you really enjoyed doing. Um, so the one that I did that had like 20 people show up was something that I'm curious if people on the left even think about. And since most people that come to those circles are on the left, I was like, well, let's find out if they think about this. But it's um, left extremism. When does the left go too far? And so um, so someone would volunteer and they'd respond to it. And they'd once their time's up, then it would go to everybody else to ask a clarifying question. So one thing about one of one thing about the structure is that you can't have an argument with someone because the only thing you can do is volunteer. Someone can ask you a question and you answer it, but you can't, if you didn't you, answer it in the way they wanted, you they don't can't. No. And so it, it really does bother people that are wanting an argument. Sometimes I think we'll get first timers and I think that's what they think it is. And we never see them again. <laughs> so and after you come a few times, you start to realize, oh, this isn't about changing minds. Although you will change people's minds by participating in in more subtle ways. Like it really helps me to just see the humanity of people that disagree with me. It's like, oh, they genuinely believe this and they are doing it because they really think this is the right thing to do. So even if I think it's pointing if everybody thought like them, we'd go the wrong direction. At least I can uh, see the humanity in them and it's not like they're evil. So, and then also sometimes you can ask a clarifying question and you actually realize that you don't disagree that much. Like you're having a problem with the definition of a word that you're using or something like that. Like that's happened before for me. And you and you lean into these conversations. You enjoy these conversations because of what it does to your mind, right? Well, or, or you like to watch. So the when dynamic. I'm when I'm the ref, I'm the one. I'll hold up the clock and I'm kind of guiding the conversation. That's where it's more structured. So it's free in that people can ask, say, and ask whatever they want. But it's structured in that the volunteer has two minutes, and then someone can ask a clarifying question. And then they have one minute to respond. So it's timed. So you can't go off and off and off and on and on. Like you only, it's timed. And if I cut you off because you ran out of time, someone else can say, hey, I'd be curious to know if you had another minute, what you would say. So like you can offer people more time, but it's structured in that like you can't. Yeah. And you'd be surprised. You only usually have time for two or three uh, volunteers to respond to the framing question and the hour's up in like two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I say two seconds, but that's a funny phrase right there that I just so it said. Goes, yeah, it goes fast. Um, it so what So what do you, the people that come back to the conversations, what, what do you perceive they get out of this engagement? I think they're genuinely like very curious people. Like, uh, and then it's a little bit of a community too. Like I know a lot of the people that are regulars and it's just fine, nice to see them. I think so. There's a community aspect, I think, that's kind of happening. I don't know if that's the purpose of it, but that does seem to be happening. 
And how does it, your participation in this, how does it affect your per, in-person relationships? Oh, but, you, it definitely helps. In fact, I think that's, if I'm any good at interviewing, I think it's partly because I participate here. But yeah. Tell me about the age range of the participants. Um, average age is somewhere like mm, over 40s, 50s, something like that. Interesting. Um, the other thing that's fascinating to me is that I am probably on the opposite end of belief politically and religiously. A lot of them are Christian. So that's interesting to me. <laughs> that is interesting. So one thing that goes through my mind is we've, we've both read Jonathan Haidt's uh, Coddling of the American Mind, right? Yeah. And for those who don't know, the college experience is very different than it used to be. Like when I was in college, you you wanted to go to a lecture of someone who had an opposing opinion. It was interesting. You didn't like protest mm. that someone you disagreed with, you know, came and spoke at school. And the and the pur purpose, I had one professor, he was a Spanish professor. He told me that the purpose of your undergrad was to learn other people's point of view and be able to defend it. And his opinion was, was it wasn't until you were in grad school or at least finished your bachelor's degree that you had a right to your own opinion. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and when I read Jonathan Haidt's book, uh, as well as what I see happening on campuses today, um, it, it's a very, very different environment where, where people feel like words are violence mm -hmm. as opposed to just different opinions and they feel like they need to cancel and shut down opposing opinions, which I think contributes to the divisiveness that we, that we have today in our culture on social media cable TV news and things like yeah. that. But and our unwillingness to like have those hard conversations too. Right. Get, like yeah. Yeah. To actually disagree with someone, especially if you value your relationship with someone. It seems it seems to lead to like really superficial relationships too. Right. Like how can you have like a deep relationship with someone if you can't even say something that's on your mind a lot, you know? Which would seem to correspond to what's considered an epidemic of loneliness and depression. Mm, yeah. Right. Cause you don't have, I, I think not having authentic, meaningful, vulnerable conversations and relationships contributes to that sense of loneliness. So tell me about the other things that you're interested in these days and what you're working on. Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm sitting here debating whether to keep the podcast going. So that's going on in my head. <laughs> I have, I have three recordings that I have to get out and I'm excited to share them. So I don't know if I need to change my process of, because what I usually do is I re-listen to them and I clip out stupid stuff like that had no con content or if I misspeak or something like that. And I have 
a 10 second, like, I'm sorry, I just misspoke. Like, you know what I, like, I just cut stupid stuff out. Um, and then I obviously put my bumpers on it for the beginning and the end, but like, what is the purpose? What's the purpose and need for post-Mormon content, do you think? Like, if you were to like kind of list out what are some of the purposes and needs for post-Mormon content? As a content creator or? No, just the, as, as you. the audience. Just the ones that you can list, the name. For the for all the possibility possible purposes and needs for post Mormon content. Hmm, that is a big question. So, well, I it, I, I actually wrote a list down. Let me make the oh, screen a little bit smaller. And I just I kind of want to brainstorm a little bit because this might help me decide if I'm gonna continue doing it. <laughs> okay. So, okay, one is like entertainment and just a pastime, right? Yeah. Like, uh, another thing I thought of is just feeling that need of like tribalism or confirmation bias. Like just, I, I mean, I'm not saying this is a need, but I think this is the purpose of some content is to compare the best of like ex-Mormon thinking or ways or with the worst of Latter-day Saint like ways of being if that makes sense yeah, um sort of feel like just to feel like to I'm feel right I'm in the right yeah, I'm in the right place I'm justified because I'm in the right place yeah. yeah um there's definitely educational like so learning something new that you didn't know that's yeah. definitely there um Breaking news. There's definitely people that keep up on like new new stuff. Um, learning, seeing something from a new perspective, I think is definitely in there. Uh, I was trying to think if this is is there self improvement in there. I don't see a lot of self improvement in. I can't think of anything off the top of my head that like seems to fit. I don't know. Maybe a little bit inspirational. Maybe yeah. motivational. A little bit. Yeah, I see some relational content information. Initially, initially, I, I wondered when I entered the post-Mormon space, I wondered why there was so much demand for discussions about sexuality. And then I realized that there's a lot more dysfunction out there that I didn't realize <laughs> existed in sexuality and sexual relationships. Huh not only in marital relationships, but the, the sense of shame or guilt uh, from traditional atonement theology. And then what was taught to individuals by their parents or their leaders about sexuality that ended up causing a lot of dysfunction. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then they go through their faith crisis and they feel like they want to test behavioral boundaries. So now they're adolescents as 30 to 50 year olds testing behavioral boundaries while they're processing the grief of a faith crisis. Uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty wild. Huh? It can be very, very messy. Yeah. Um, Keep going. Uh, so, yeah, I was just trying to think if there was anything in that 
because I was trying to think of content in general, like when you see content online and I was trying to see what the purpose, if there's anyways, uh, critiquing of, of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is definitely one of the purposes and needs, I think, uh, connections, making connections or kind of finding a community. I've noticed that Mormonism live people jump on there all together and there's like a little community in the chat, um, kind of the same thing with Chris's channel. I've seen that starting to happen there too. And I'm sure that's happening on other channels that I'm unaware of. Um, and then just to create content to share with others too are some things that I thought of. Um, yeah. Am I missing anything? What are other, what else would, could, can you think of as like the purpose and need for post-Mormon content? I mean, what I what I think of is my estimate is that on average about three percent a year of otherwise active believing members are going through some sort of faith transition, um, and so a ward that has 150 active members, you know, maybe there's four to six a year people in that ward that go through it, and my sense. There Go ahead. Oh, that just reminded me of something Bill Real said. So, so in a sense, kind of reviving old content, keeping alive something that is old for someone that left five years ago, but might be new, new to the new person. Someone just leaving because it's not a static viewership. Correct. Yeah. So my, my sense is over the next 10 to 15 years, there'll be more than a million current believing members that are going through, going to go through a faith transition in the Rocky, right. in the Rocky mountain States and the Pacific States. So that's your, your estimate. Uh, where did that come from? I, I think active membership of the church worldwide is probably 5 million. Plus or no, minus. So your percent of people having a faith crisis, where, where are you uh -oh. basing that off of? Um, mostly it's anecdotal, talking with people in different states. Uh, I mean, I spoke at a event in St. George, and um, and there were some women that came to it that lived in a small town near... Um, Cedar City, I think it's Enoch. And in a period of like six months, like there were, I think, six families that left that ward. Hmm. So that's probably a lot more than 3% in that ward. Um, but I, my faith crisis happened seven years ago. And so what I've been watching happen in our local stakes, and then what I've been talking about with progressive Mormons and post-Mormons in other places, um, as well as asking people that have been in this space a long time, like Lindsay Hansen Park or John DeLynn or Bill Reel's been around a long time, mm -hmm. to get a feel for what the percentage is. And it seemed that it's about 3% a year um, that are going Do you think that'll it. maintain, though? Like, I think it's compounding. Do you? Yeah. Oh, wow. The reason I say that is because as soon as the church becomes a little bit more open 
about their history. And I think they're already kind of doing a better job teaching the full history, like in, in a seminary institute. I don't think that generation is going to struggle as much as my gen, my seminary institute generation. If that makes sense. Yeah, I, like, too, I think it's still going to happen, but it's it's a lot easier. Like my loyalty crashed because of I the sense of dishonesty that I had, like that they weren't being fully transparent. So if they become more transparent and you don't ever have the initial loyalty loss, like maybe they can maintain some membership that way. Like I honestly, to be dead honest with you, I as long as they're okay with me being honest with what I really believe, I could, I could participate. I think, I don't know. Yeah. I think I could, like, I just, I wouldn't be the relief society president or anything, <laughs> Yeah. but like our, our local ward, they're, they're not sure what to do with us <laughs> because a lot of them have had family members that have left and we've been told by some of them that we don't act the same way as some of their family that has left. They're like, Oh wow. You're that's really good that you're not so angry that you can't still hang out with us. Or they'll say things like that when we go to activities and stuff. Um, there's, I was told by both my Bishop and my stake president in separate conversations uh, when they said you should come back, I said, well, I'd be happy to come back if I can participate and make comments or, you know, if there's something that I feel helpful to, um, I, and they asked, well, what would be an example? I said, well, for example, the story of Jonah, you know, in studying biblical scholarship, I learned that the story of Jonah is a beautiful satirical allegory that was written by some writer to push back on narratives that God could only care about the covenant people. And it's, it's a really beautiful story that, you know, that Jonah could be pissed that he would know that God would forgive the non-covenant people if he went and taught them. And, uh, and I think if we try to focus and, on the literal historicity of the story and try to make sense of a man living in a fish for three days. Like we have totally missed the purpose and the beauty of the story. Mm -hmm. And both of them independently said um, to suggest that the story of Jonah is not a literal historical story. That would be too stretching for our members. You couldn't mm -hmm. do that. And I'm like, okay. Um, uh, so I wasn't even going to mention that if I was in a lesson and we were talking about priesthood restoration to unpack the scholarship of what priesthood meant in biblical times, as well as the mm -hmm. history of the messiness of the history of the narrative of priesthood restoration, that no one knew about it until 1834, you know, um, because there's no way that they would be okay with discussing that history. I, I probably would be policed if I mentioned Doctrine and Covenants 137, like I mentioned <laughs> earlier, right? 
that what's in the Joseph Smith Papers project doesn't match what's in the canon because they edited it out, the prophecies that were demonstrably false. Unless um, it was like a specific lesson that was on the tough stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have the urge to rock that boat. I really don't because I, I feel like the information's out there. People can go get it. But I am interested in maintaining like a social fabric. And I feel like the organization that the church has as far as having a having a congregation set up by geo geography, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, I'll tell you what, I have a huge head start on knowing my neighbors than someone that just moves in is not LDS and doesn't go to church. And so I just kind of, when I left, I guess one way I, I feel like I'm looking at it from where I'm at is like, well, I already kind of know a bunch of my neighbors and I'm going to kind of maintain that. So I'm going to let them see me every once in a while. If they invite us to a, a summer barbecue activity, I'll come and I'll, catch up and let them know I'm still here and you know like I just don't like that's cool that they organize stuff like that and they're always inviting everybody that will come and so we've just been willing to show up and not to make them feel uncomfortable just to be part of the community be part of the neighborhood still yeah so so I would say that over the last seven years my ward has changed um, since that conversation you were describing before since that conversation okay um one of the one of the people in our mormon spectrum support group uh who went through his faith crisis around the same time as me um almost decided to resign uh but for some reason he decided that he wanted to try going to church again Mm-hmm. So he did, and we supported him in that. And he met with our bishop, different bishop, because uh, there were changes since mm-hmm. my faith crisis. And he basically said, on a on a spectrum, there are some people who believe that scriptures are like a fax machine from God, like speaking through men like they're sock puppets. And every word is from God and it's literal history. And then there's some people on the other end of the spectrum where scriptures is entirely metaphorical. And if there's history in it, it's just like ancillary to the metaphor. And he said on this spectrum, I'm right here. That's where I am. The bishop said that. This is where our, my friends in our group said to the bishop. Oh, okay. He said that to the bishop. He said to the bishop, he said, so, if I can come and participate in a Sunday school class representing myself is I don't believe this stuff more than metaphorically, um, then I would like to come. And over a period of discussions, uh, the Bishop said, yes, we'll support you in that. We know that that will be stretching for some of the members of our ward, but the leadership will support you in participating. And now he, and now he's in the Sunday school presidency. That's awesome. Well, I really do. I really do think that if you can present what you think is what you think and it's not how it is. Yes. 
this is something I learned from this source. And maybe you say what the source is and say that this is something I learned and it made me think of it like this and it adds to the lesson in some way. I don't think people are bothered by that. Yeah, might, like I could say- It, it might make a small percentage uncomfortable, but- I could talk about small, yeah, Jonah. Yeah, so I could talk about Jonah without- saying it's a satirical allegory, I could just say, hey, when I read this story, I just find this really beautiful, you know, expression by the writer of this idea that God could love the non-covenant people. Right. Right. And, and who are we to say no to God, because we're going to be pissed if God forgives the non-covenant people. Right. And I could, I could do it that way. Yeah. Um, it was probably harder to do when I was early in my faith transition. Um, so my ward has shifted to be more accepting of people like my friend in our Facebook or in our uh, Mormon spectrum support group. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think, and, and you've seen some of this and some of the places that were both exist online that there are people that are shifting with the degree of their literalistic belief. Mm -hmm. And there are some that will welcome those people into the conversation. And there are others who will retrench and be defensive because they want to excise the near enemy of the non-literal believer from the group. You, you've seen that. Do you, yeah. Who do you think that is? I'm curious if you're referring to someone specific. I mean, we both had a conversation with Jacob Hansen, right? Mm -hmm. And and I don't think we're speaking out of turn when when we say Jacob wants to cleanse the church of the progressive believers. Politically progressive, though, right? Uh, uh, religiously I, progressive, too. I don't think he thinks I'm progressive. Like, I think if I asked to go join his ward in the way that your spectrum group person yeah. was I don't think he'd be threatened by that um I, so I, I'm speculating we'll yeah, have to we'll, no. we'll have to ask Jacob I mean we to can comment ask, we can ask him but I would tell who you is he who is he now now he's he, a different there, person there, in there person. are some beliefs that I don't hold that I know that are held in that building and I would respect it though for example I don't believe the prophet talks to God. Like, in fact, that's probably of one of the most sacred held beliefs that Latter-day Saints hold. Uh, that's probably one of the ones that I think is, I, I, I can't see it as a good thing other than one thing. And that is to have a final say so that you have some coherence, a uh, group cohesion. Oh, what's the word for it? It's a paradox, right? <laughs> Like yeah. without someone being able to say, this is what we believe you're going to have so much fragmenting. You're not going to have a group anymore. So that's where I can see the importance of it. But as the, the dangers, like it's too bad. It's not more like Judaism where you have the practices that kind of hold you together and there's not like some mouthpiece. Like there are other ways that groups co have cohesion without having like a final say, you know, like, I just think there's so much, there's it's so dangerous to have a prophet because the second that that 
mantle is placed onto somebody that's crazy, you have a good chunk of people that aren't going to realize that that person's crazy and they're going to follow them. <laughs> like, and I don't know, maybe there's well, enough like that Jesus protections cares that, about the word Mormon, you know, kind of thing. That, uh, that's, that's, we haven't had anyone do anything scary that I would be scared of. I don't think, cause they're so careful to just, Maybe there isn't one person making the decision. Maybe it is the whole committee of them and they just claim it's one person. I don't know, but. Yeah, I don't know. So my experience with Jacob and yours, I think also is that when you're having an in-person conversation or a video conversation like this, that's different than Jacob on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter. That's probably why I'm, I'm not. Oh, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, well, if you've watched some of his episodes, he is he doesn't like Faith Matters Foundation. He doesn't like Julie Hanks. Um, he doesn't like Patrick Mason. Yeah, I have watched some of those. But wouldn't you agree that all of those people that he's got in his crosshairs are progressive politically? Or no? Uh, so I I think that whether or not they're progressive politically, his concerns are about doctrinal purity, I think. Trying to think, when I've watched him, I mean, right. I'm, a, I'm a social right. libertarian, so, so to him that's liberal. So, for example, he's going to get after Julie Hanks for saying, if you don't want to wear your garments, it's not a big deal. Correct. Okay. So, um, and uh, if someone was drinking coffee and they said, we'll just drink coffee and keep coming to church, he's going to say they shouldn't be able to go to the temple. You're right. right. You are right. Yeah. So I would not be able to fully participate, but I'm, I'm willing to accept that, but still participate in the level that I can. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like, I'm also not going to donate 10% of my money. Yeah. Ever again. Correct. I, of course, five years ago, I would have said that I'm always going to donate 10% of my money. So never say never, I guess. Um, I joined, I joined a book club that about half of us are former believers and about half of us are believers and uh, we read or listen to a book and then once a month we get together and we talk about it. Um, and that's been really enjoyable. And some of the believers are somewhat, I mean, they have some nuance, but they're pretty orthodox believers. And that's been really enjoyable. Um, that's cool. And this is I, in person? An in-person book club, yeah, here that's in awesome. Billings, Montana. And I hope that more of that happens. So what I, I think kind of back to the discussion that we were, the thread that we were on is I think, I think it'll be a million and whether it's a million or half a million, it's going to be a lot of people. There are a lot of people that are going to even reading like you saints, which is supposed to be more transparent. Mm -hmm. People will read original sources, uh, still lose that and loyalty the and they're going to go uh they're spinning a narrative here this isn't entirely transparent um i i lost my faith reading the gospel topics essays um 
and I found the gospel topics essays misrepresenting some of the information in the footnotes and in the cited sources. Um, and that, that plus recognizing that my spiritual experiences had proven unreliable because they confirm the truthfulness of false things mm-hmm. or counterfactual things is what triggered my faith crisis. Hmm. So, so when I think of whether or not, not it's a million, there'll be a lot of people that are going to go through a faith transition. I think, um, during the next 10 to 15 years. And I think that you're an outlier where both you and your husband went through it at the same time. More often than not, I think that people will go through it at different times than their spouses or kids. And so I think there'll be strained relationships and things like that. And so the question, I had a conversation actually with Patrick Mason last summer. I went to a, a meetup where he spoke and I asked him afterwards, I said, you know, I told him, I said, I think about 3% a year going through a faith transition and within the next 10 to 15 years, probably more than a million, million people are going to go through this in the Rocky mountain States and the Pacific States. Mm-hmm. And I, and my, my question for Patrick was, are, is the big C church, so Salt Lake city and the brethren and the little C church on the local level, are they going to minister to those people? Are they going to retrench and, you know, cleanse themselves of the near enemy of the non-literalist believer kind of thing? Mm -hmm. And Patrick's answer was, I I think you're right. Uh, That's probably what's going to happen. He says, but the the answer to your question is, I have no idea, Anthony. I don't know whether they're going to minister or whether they're going to retrench. And I replied, probably both and and he said yeah i think we'll see both and and i think we see that so i think we see things like president nelson's recent talk about not being super divisive and then we see other talks including by him in the past that were pretty divisive and i think we see wards that were like the the context of the ward that when I went through my faith crisis seven years ago, I started asking about the gospel topics essays because I had never heard of them. I couldn't find anyone in my ward who had read them. And just for asking about the gospel topics essays in 2016, there were members of my ward that started referring to me as the apostate back mm. then. I don't think that would happen today. It wouldn't happen today. In my yeah, Instead, ward. it's me saying I'm the apostate. Right, yeah, right, right. And so, so I think that there'll be literalist believers and there'll be more nuanced believers and there'll be some things that we get from the brethren that are very divisive to protect the fold and there'll be some that are very conciliatory and trying to support people through the process. And as part of the bigger picture, I think the question, at least the question for me is whether it's hundreds of thousands or whether it's a million, there are a lot of people that are gonna go through an existential crisis and they're gonna go through 
the difficulty of an anger stage and a burn it down stage. And they're going to go through the, uh, the complexities of mixed faith relationships with their parents, their kids, their spouse. Um, and the question to, for me is, do, do I want to be, do I want to participate in the ministering probably is the wrong word because that makes it sound like I have something that other people don't have, you know? Uh, but I want to participate in that journey. Um, if I can, if I can share something that was helpful for me, so I wouldn't be angry anymore, or if I can share something about how I navigate my mixed faith marriage and that provides some value or when I did my TEDx talk, to walk people through the experience of an existential uh, dark night of the soul faith crisis in such a way that it would be safe even for a believing member to watch that so that mm -hmm. they could better understand what some of their family and friends have gone through. Um, to me, I find meaning in participating in those things. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I feel like I'm burnt out. Like, I want to be an XX Mormon. That's, you know, here, here. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to decide. Do I want to be an XX Mormon? And I don't even know that that's possible, particularly if you live in a community of Mormons or if you have believing family and some of your closest know. friends. I feel like I'm getting a taste of it. it can, like, it's not that it's not that it disappears. It's not that it's not a thing anymore. It's just it becomes this thing. We've got a really interesting dynamic in our cul-de-sac. Um, I really, I don't want to necessarily share publicly, but it's just, that we've got a lot of different kinds of people. Um, we had a pretty, um, we had a tragedy happen within our neighborhood last summer and that brought us, brought us together in a way. I think that, um, made us all feel like we were there for each other too. Our kids all play well together, but then we've got some people without kids that are still kind of part of us. Like, I don't know how to describe it. I just, it's the kind of neighborhood you'd want to live in and not everybody's going to the church on Sunday. And I think that as a member, that's what I wanted. Right. And I didn't know how to foster those relationships from the inside of the church, but I found it to be kind of a cool opportunity to do it from the outside. And it, and the willingness for the members in my area to participate in that has, has been awesome. Like, I think a lot of times we give Mormons bad rap for having superficial relationships and not deep ones because it's just this going to church every week or whatever. It's not that the want isn't there. I think that we just don't know how, and nobody knows how really. I think relationships are hard. I, I don't think it's hard showing up authentic, right? And showing people all of your, hey, my house isn't clean, or yeah, I probably yell at my kids more than I should, or just showing up with your real honest self. Like authentic, I feel like is overused to like mean something that I don't understand. But when I say authentic, I mean, I'm being honest with you. This is what I am. This is what I'm struggling with. This is what I want to become. And I'm going to let you in and let you realize how not close to where I want to be I am. 
and maybe we can help each other and learn from each other, you know? And is it making sense at all? <laughs> I'm kind of going off. I'm rambling again. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I, a couple comments. One is there's a challenge really doing that at church because it seems like the majority of Sunday is about belief affirmation hmm. rather than, I mean, there's exceptions, there are exceptions, of course, um, but it seems like the majority is about belief affirmation. And in two hours that aren't a full two hours, because there's a break, like how in depth really are you going to get into a vulnerable, deep conversation about life and struggles and desires and pains sure. and things like that. But you um, certainly have heard those talks and those, those talks where people do go there or a lesson, yeah. someone that gives a lesson that does go there where they actually spent time preparing the lesson and they do take you down there. Yeah. Like that. And it opened, like I have been in some pretty good lessons where the room opens up to that and then you get comment after comment after comment and you just start to realize like, yeah, we're all struggling with this thing just because one person was willing to open up and be a little bit vulnerable and be like, Hey, you know, I struggle with this or whatever. And then all of a sudden everybody realizes, okay, for one, I'm not alone. And, Oh, here's some ideas that might help, you know, like, uh, I'm not saying it happens every week at church, but it certainly happened. I wouldn't want to take that from the practice of, learning in a group setting like that and just being with people that want the best for you. Yeah. Um, I mean, of all the people that are going to go through that have gone through or that are going to go through a faith transition, um, I think a lot of them are just going to want to, you know, use substances and party and, live in adolescence as adults for a really long period of time and that's what their choice is going to be mm. and i th think there are some people who are going to want to reconstruct meaning have these kinds of conversations philosophy spirituality secular spirituality things like that and i think there are some people that are going to want to be like my friend in our mormon strict spectrum group and they're going to want to or like me in the book club, that we're going to want to turn around and engage in our community uh, because they're a part of our relationships and our formation, mm -hmm. um, but not do it in a way really that's a belief affirmation participation, but it's still authentic and it's part participation. Mm -hmm. So when you ask about content creators, I think, and, and that was an oversimplification of a spectrum, but I think that there's going to be demand for content across that spectrum. I think there's going to be, you know, X Mormon Reddit will grow. Um, deconstructive material is going to grow. Um, like you mentioned, Bill Real said, there's new people coming into this, you know, and even though we did episodes about the gospel topics essays three, four years ago, it's totally good for a new content creator to do a refresh 
right. serious about the gospel topics essays because there are new people coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's going to be more demand for other kinds of content. And I see this in the, I see this in the post evangelical Christian uh, environment. Cause I see what Brian McLaren is doing with uh, his book. Do I stay Christian? Uh, and his Did book you... faith after doubt. Okay. So I, that's interesting. I don't know who Brian McLaren is except for there was a three practice live thing about is Christianity worth saving. Did you hear about that by chance? Well, I didn't hear the live, but I listened to the book. Um, no, there was Oh, so there's a book with the same title. It's do I stay Christian? Okay. So, uh, Jim Henderson, um, and, and Jim Hancock organized a live, I think it was in, they had one in Seattle and one in Portland with Brian McLaren as one of the panelists. And so they did like a, they did a fishbowl. So not the whole audience couldn't participate with the three practice. So it was a fishbowl. So only the, the panel could take two minutes and ask questions, but they did a, basically a three practice circle live uh, with Brian McLaren. So anyway, I just, sorry, that's a little side. Yeah, note, I, I'd suggest both of those books, faith after doubt and do I stay Christian? Um, Brett Hartley, Janice Spangler, Bill and I did uh, three episodes on Faith After Doubt on the Almost Awakened podcast. Okay. That I, I think that was, I enjoyed those conversations. But um, in our Mormon Spectrum group, we're in, there are a number of people that are increasingly engaging with what we're alluding to now in terms of. Uh, being at a place in our own journey where we go and we engage with or draw people into engagement inside the church, even though we're not literal believers in such a way that um, it's not adversarial, but we can renew those relationships, hmm. you know, whether it's a book club or whether it's, going on hikes or camps or planning elders quorum activities. Yeah. Uh, And so I think there'll be demand for that. When I, when I think of the content creators, you know, I think there'll be demand for many of those things. I think Bill's podcast umbrella, and I think Dylan's open stories, um, like, there's a saying that if you want to catch an elephant, you get in front of it and dig a hole and it'll just walk right into it. And if there's, if there's hundreds of thousands or a million people in the next 10 years that are going to be seeking deconstruction, making sense of things, mixed faith relationships, uh, philosophy, sexuality, um, and reconstructive conversations, like there's, there are going to be hundreds of thousands of people that are going to desire that. Mm. And the question is, is who are going to be the content creators that are, that are going to do it? And is the church going to, is the, is on the low, the big C church and the little C church is, is the church going to push people into those 
content creators and groups by not providing more nuance uh, on the local level or on the church level? Or are they going to minister to those people? And, and I don't know that there's a really good answer to that because I'm sure that they have the data that when one spouse goes through a faith transition, a very high percentage of the time, the other spouse follows, you know, within the following 10 years. And so if you, if you validate, you know, this is my thought on it. If you validate mixed faith marriage, if you, if you give a general conference talk that says, um, having a spouse that loses belief isn't a good justification for a divorce. Uh, and if you um, give conciliatory talks and themes about mixed faith relationships, um, that's helpful because it will, I think it will result in less heartache and pain and less divorce and broken families. But at the same time, if your purpose is to protect the heritage and reputation of the church and strength of belief, that's going to be counterproductive because if you can prevent that from happening, then you're going to save more people from losing literal belief. So it seems like someone would have to feel that it's more important to minister to the one. It's more important to help people navigate these things than it is to protect the faith and try to prevent people go, from going through a faith crisis. I, I don't know. It, they, they're between a rock and a hard place. I don't, I don't have an answer for them <laughs> because yeah, I just don't have an answer for them. I do think though, the way that we've been treated I don't think it's abnormal. I don't think it's like we're in some kind of special kind of ward where they haven't ostracized us or anything like that, you know? So I think, I think there's a lot of people that are navigating these relationships in their families. And so this isn't their first rodeo anymore. Like it was maybe 10 years ago. Yeah. That makes sense. Like there's, it seems like somebody knows somebody even in that, to me, that's changed even in the last three years. That more, more people know someone who's gone through a shift in faith. Mm-hmm. Maybe I just feel like everybody has that because they know me, but <laughs> it just seems like there are more people that are having someone that's not one removed anymore. It's like they know somebody, whether it was a good friend, a sibling, a parent, child. They know somebody that has had like, not just, not just the fall away before they ever had a chance to go on a mission or get married in the temple or whatever, like not that kind, but the kind that they were doing all the things, checking all the boxes and then just suddenly stop. More of those are happening. I think. I, I think, I think so. I think social media plays into that to a certain extent. When I went through my faith crisis in 2016, there were not very many people 
three or four who I could think of who just stopped attending. You know, they were on ward or state council level kind of participation. Right. And then they stopped. Um, and I couldn't make sense of things. Uh, and I think just in the last seven years, a lot more of that has happened. And so I agree with you that most people either have a friend or a family member who has gone from believing to non-believing. And that doesn't really even count the number of people who haven't voiced where they're at. Like we were pretty vocal about where we were at the whole way. Bishop knew where we were at. My family knew where we were at. Like we had a baptism coming up. So we were really pretty upfront because we wanted basically to warn people, hey, if we don't baptize our daughter, this is why. And, and then we hung on long enough to do it. It's just how the cards fell. But, um, but yeah, we told everybody really early on and I know, I know there's a lot of people that don't say anything. They keep it to themselves for a lot longer than we did. I've had multiple people tell me that, that came to me after and and said, hey, I know what you're going through. I haven't believed for a decade or something. And I had no mm. idea. But they went anyway. And we didn't have any of those. With I, a, like a believing I, spouse or something like that. I thought we would. I had, when we were going through it, I was like, oh my goodness. I'll bet this brother and this brother on the same page as us. They just haven't said anything. And so then I go and I talk to him and then I was disappointed at the time at, right now I'm okay with where they're at but at the time I was wanting to not be alone yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> so I so I remember in my head I was like oh I'll bet you this person this person's like just hasn't told anybody and then we were wrong <laughs> so I'm so I'm so. interested in your thoughts on the whole content creator thing so I I think there'll be demand and the question is, is do you want to be in does someone want to be involved in those conversations or topics and for a period of time or a long period of time. And for, for some people, they maybe have enough affinity that it, they can create intellectual capital like bill and it can be their, their job. Right. Mm. Yeah. And, um, well, this kind of goes back to why I brought it up in the first place, because if I personally, my thinking on this is that you have positive content and negative content. If I'm going to say neutral too. There's neutral content, right? Where it's just time waster. Like I'm just watching this because I have nothing else to do and it doesn't really make your life better or worse. I would say there's a good chunk of content out there. And I'd say this in the political world and um, everywhere online where someone will watch it and we'll get the most views. And so it's created. And I'm not even necessarily blaming anybody for this. I think it's just this thing that's happening. Um, and I'm not sure I want to participate with this. Hmm, how do I word it? This automatic behavior. That's how I'll put it. It's like this not thinking algorithmic kind of content watching. Does that make sense? (laughs) 
Like, it's not, it's not like you got on here and you said, man, I want to know how to have a good relationship. I'm going to Google relationships, Mormon, ex-Mormon or something. And that's what you're looking for. Right. But it's instead what it, the algorithm puts in your feed so that you that's can see right. the largest volume of it. That's right. Yeah. It's what is going to get the clicks and then what, and And I'm not saying that things that get the clicks are necessarily negative. It's not what I'm trying to say. But I'm kind of wondering if, I mean, is it worth maybe trying to, you know, get in the algorithm and try to produce positive stuff, you know, like where, hey, this might be a little clickbaity, but I think it's going to have a net good on the people that watch it, right? As far as like what I think a good aim in life is, it's like, I'm not sure that a good aim in life is to be a content creator. Like, I, how am I helping the world by just creating some content? You're saying that <laughs> if there's lots of people that are going to go through a faith transition that you think that... um there's going to be increasing environments in the little C church that are like what you're experiencing in your ward, what exists in my ward, even though neither of us are members. Um, yeah. And I so you'll think, think so. there'll be more of that. Um, you think I'm putting well, words in your mouth. There'll be more mentors because everyone's going to know someone that's gone through it that they can talk to on a local level? Not a mentor, but just some of those old ideas of just the way you'd frame someone that, that happens to are going to be obviously not true to a lot of people. So they're not going to treat them like that, like that, like they just want to sin, you know, that they're not going to treat people like that as much. I don't think I will say this though. I, I do think the more echo chambery, ex-Mormon content is, the less willing people are going to be to jump into that. And they are going to be more willing to hang out with the more nuanced people at church. If, does that make sense? Like there's, as you become so flip-flopped and you can't say anything good about the church, when someone's experiencing the good at church, that's going to fall flat for a lot of people that are going through a faith crisis. So they're not going to find a home in the ex-Mormon world either, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So yes, there's a lot of people that struggle finding a home at church, but they're going to jump online and watching people and they're going to be like, that, that's not it either. So I don't think a lot of people feel ministered to because of that. Yeah. I think it depends on where they are and the point of their developmental experience. I mean, you alluded to this, that perhaps a lot of what you experienced is that you went through this during COVID. Mm -hmm. So you weren't raging, trying to go to church while wounded. Mm -hmm. And that affected your experience differently than someone who did it before or after maybe. Yeah. I think that's a possibility for sure. 
that's maybe why I've been successful in maintaining those relationships is because I didn't burn any bridges. Didn't have a chance to. <laughs> so if you, if you chose to only do a podcast a month or not con create content anymore, would you still do the, the circles, the three practices? Yeah. Well, there is something else I've kind of have a brainchild of, and that is to possibly do those circles and publish them. So the participants would have to be willing and it's going to change the circle because the way they are now, people can talk freely and it stays in the room. I mean, you might have someone that says, oh, so-and-so said this, but it's just hearsay at that point, right? Like the recording is just for learning purposes. It won't be ever public. Um, so I've, I've tempted, I've been tempted to have some kind of, of podcast where that audio is published and the participants are aware. I think you'd still get some really benefit. I think um, maybe, maybe it would be like not a good debate format, but like a good conversation format. I don't know. When you hear, I'd be curious to know like 50,000 times in one hour, you just start saying it in every day. Like, Hey, I'd be curious to know. <laughs> I'd be curious to know. I don't know. That's interesting. So are they so, open? Are they open to that? Well, I mean, the they don't, they don't, I've, I've talked to them about it. Um, they don't own it. And they're like, Hey, if you want to do something like that, let us know and let us know if there's something we can do to help. I just, I haven't decided how to do it. Like if I, I don't think where will you go is the right place for that. Cause there's part of me that feels like things need to be organized in a way so that if someone wants to go through a binge of where will you go, they're kind of the same format and they're the same, you know, yeah. Yeah. and I don't want to throw in too many, like, Oh, this is, I, I, I just don't want to make it too random. I want to keep it somewhat organized. So I don't know if I, try to host it. I, I'm sure like Chris Hanna would let me do it on his channel. His is kind of random. Maybe he'd be okay with making it more random, <laughs> but um, the other thing that I've wanted to do with where will you go that I haven't taken the time or effort to set up is something like ping burn did, but have, have it be virtual, just having some, conversations where people are are ready for a conversation and i just be the, the mediator moderator. yeah just the organizer setter or maybe i get a third person to moderate you know he didn't moderate him he just set him up got yeah. the conversation going thought hey this is a conversation i think people want to hear and i there's a lot of those in my head where i'm like i think it'd be really cool to have this person talk to this person and get it set up and actually have a, a real conversation where we're not making, I don't know. It, if, if I could find some people to be grown ups and not, yeah. and not, uh, you know, so I thought of that too. And I just haven't set that up either. So it's not that I think that all 
content is is terrible or that all ex-Mormon content is terrible. It's just, I don't know. It's one of the worst things that I felt is just feeling this sense of like stuck. I'm not getting anything done. I'm not progressing toward anything. Now I'm not progressing toward eternal life. Now what am I doing? I'm just sitting here on YouTube watching this stuff. Like, I don't know. I think it's important to get outside and get some fresh air. <laughs> I don't know how you encourage people to do that, though, <laughs> without, you know what I mean? Like, you're doing yeah. your book club thing, and that's probably yeah. a better use of your time than scrolling through whatever, <laughs> yeah. whatever the algorithm feeds you. <laughs> True. Yeah, I, this year I'll speak at four events. I'll speak at um, three Thrive events and then at Sunstone, hopefully. Um, and I find meaning in that because of the response that I get from the audience or the feedback, yeah. the one-on-one -on -one conversations. Um, cool. I find meaning in that. But I've semi-retired too, so... I planned my whole life so by my current age I could go serve missions because of how I interpreted my patriarchal blessing. And, we did too. <laughs> oh, nice. So you understand. But we're not retired yet, but yeah, that was totally our life goal. That was the life goal, yeah. yeah. So um, what I've decided is having learned from my financial planning clients, the entrepreneur types, the professional types, most of them don't do well retiring the straight leisure. They, mm -hmm. they feel put out of use. And so um, the ones that go serve missions, you know, multiple times uh, or have service opportunities in the church, they don't feel put out of use because that's how they create value or they mm -hmm. experience value creation. Um, but since that's not going to be me, um, I would follow my, clients who decided at some point in their business to structure it so they could drop to half-time work and then work into their 80s and never fully retire hmm. and so that's what I've decided to do so that's um, cool yeah thanks so this year I dropped to half-time um, which allows me to go camping hiking traveling with my wife um, and allows me to spend more time in these kinds of conversations, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as long as there's not family things that come up, sure. but which they do. I mean, as long as I continue to feel like I'm creating value and that I have some sort of purpose, you know, may, maybe that's what I'll, I'll participate in the conversations, but I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't know what'll happen in the future. I mean, who knows? Maybe a year right. from now, I'm ready to be an XX Mormon. I, I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to give a disclaimer. I could just be projecting my things that bother me about myself onto everybody else in the world <laughs> as far as, like, wasting time and just being sucked into the algorithm. So, like, maybe this content's, like, way more helpful that I'm giving it credit for. So, there's that possibility. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, for some people, it's very helpful. Mm -hmm. 
I think what you're doing with the three practices is meaningful, at least for the people that are coming back, right? Yeah. I've, I've gotten a lot of feedback from other people that really appreciate me setting them up. And like, for example, a lot of, a lot of the refs, they truly want to be in the room with difference, but they don't get that chance very often. And a lot of times I will take two minutes just to balance the room out. I don't like doing that just because I feel like a, um, I, I've really learned to enjoy just listening and I've just learned that what I have to say isn't going to change anybody's mind. So it's like, I don't really feel like I need to say it. I don't know. <laughs> um, but a lot of people have thanked me and they're like, Oh, I really think I appreciate that. Like it was a good workout for me too. So I'm glad I can offer that to people, I guess. <laughs> so is there something else that you wanted to ask me too? I don't want to dominate all the questions. I hear this in a conservative space a lot. Like Ben Shapiro will talk about it a lot. Just how the sense that our social fabric is fraying. Do you get that same sense at all? Would it be fair to say that like having a common belief, whether that's a Christian, Judeo-Christian value structure system, like by losing that, which I feel like it is like, I think atheism is like the number one growing <laughs> belief group. Yeah. So as, as we're losing that value, like, is there, is that what's causing some of this social fabric to be tearing? If it is tearing, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree that it's disintegrating and I agree that there's more us versus them and there's less seeking out shared values when september 11th happened uh certainly there were some people that responded with this is just blowback from the stuff that we've been doing in the rest of the world kind of thing um but i think there were the majority of the country, regardless of their political or religious ideology, um, they felt like Americans and they felt like a part, the people who were killed were a part of them in some way. Mm -hmm. um, and if that happened today, 22 years later, I don't know. I don't know if that same thing would happen. I don't know if people would go, oh, that's just the liberal New Yorkers or um, I don't know. And I think we have evidence that it wouldn't happen because I think there was an opportunity for that kind of unity during COVID and it didn't happen. Yeah, I, I've read and heard that and I, and to a certain extent, I agree with that because um like in our community, uh, we were late to, to have COVID initially come in, but like it hit one assisted living facility and in 45 days it killed two thirds of the people in the assisted living facility. Hmm. And you would think that that would have impacted the community differently than it did, but it was so politicized 
that that um i mean there were people that didn't believe that it was covid that killed those people there were there was the whole mask thing mm-hmm. there was it just became so politicized that i think of any other circumstance where in a short period of time you know dozens and dozens of people died in our community um if it was something other than COVID, maybe it wouldn't have been that politicized and our community would have done something about it. Yeah. You know, or maybe, maybe COVID was too slow moving for people to have the time to have their political opinions first or something where September 11 was suddenly, I don't know, maybe it's not apples to apples, but I don't know. I just, I don't know. Even, even when Trump was talking about the vaccine, you know, you had some people on the left side saying, I'm not taking that. That's coming out way too fast. And then as soon as the presidency flipped, then it was the other side that was saying they weren't going to take it. (laughs) So Uh, yeah, it was definitely politicized and the, and the perpetuation of conspiracies. Um, Yeah. The social fabric is tearing and I don't, and the political theater is changing and I don't, I I don't spit. I, the tipping point I think is way gone and I, I don't see a change. I speculate that um, as religion, even if people claim to believe uh, they're so compartmentalized with living in the their daily life. You know, they're using cell phones. They're using the stuff that the scientific method has produced. Yeah. And the scientific method is over here saying that there's not supernatural stuff either. Right. <laughs> so I feel like um, whether people claim, you know, wh- wh- whether they're, whatever self is saying, Hey, yeah, I'm participating. I I really do literally believe all this stuff that this church believes. Um, I think it's not believable and it's almost like, uh, politics are becoming the new, like foundational belief that people have. Like, I think it's easier. And and there's evidence of this in the ex-Mormon space. It's easier for John DeLynn to get, get along with Patrick Mason than it is for John DeLynn to get along with someone like me, like where, Mm -hmm. I am on the same page with John DeLynn as far as uh, religion goes, but we differ politically. And I'm not saying, um, like, I'm trying to think of anybody conservative that he's had on his show. I don't, can't think of anyone. And it's not to say that hasn't happened, but. Yeah, I'm sure there are some. He did. He did an episode. He did a couple episodes when Trump won, I think, hmm. or maybe it was in the midterm elections. He did a couple episodes. One that had pro-Trump people on, and one that had right. But same thing. It's easier for me to get along with Jake Hansen than it is for me to get along with John Delin too, like because like, of political philosophy, right? Like, so it's almost like politics have become our new God. Like it is the most important thing to people. And then religion is like a layer on top of that. And it's not the most foundational thing anymore, which is weird. Yeah. I actually agree with that. And and you want to know what I'm seeing increase 
and it'll be interesting, very interesting to me to see where this goes is I'm seeing an increasing number of people go through a faith crisis because, because they believe the brethren aren't conservative enough. Or vice versa, right? They lost their faith over vaccines or they lost their faith over the church getting involved with the NAACP or they lost belief over their brethren recognizing Biden and Harris as one. Have you met people like, have you met some, anybody like that? I haven't met anyone in real life that has that view. Um, So I'm just curious, like how like prevalent you think that is. (laughs) I don't doubt that it's happened, but. um, Um, Just trying to get a gauge on that. Yeah. So one of my friends is Chris Kimball. He's been on the board of dialogue. He recently wrote a book called uh, living on the inside of the edge. Um, It's pretty good. I, I, if you like David Osler's book, I think you might like Chris Kimball's book. Um, But what he's telling me is he's going and giving presentations about living on the inside of the edge of the church after having lost literalist belief about his book and he's been giving feedback in a group that I'm in sharing that an increasing number of the people that come up and speak to him after are people who their shift was uh, political stuff because they were more conservative. The members were more conservative than the brethren and so they lost literal belief because they were more conservative politically than they perceived the brethren were. Hmm. And so it is mostly secondhand. I'm sure I've had conversations with a few people who lean that direction. Um, I just like my, my, oh. my family is like as conservative as can be and none of them are going anywhere as far as the church goes. So that's why I'm like, if I feel like I would see it in my life if it was super prevalent, I guess, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I don't think it's super prevalent. I, I think that it's, it's a dynamic that's increasing. Hmm. Um, As, yeah. Like there was one, it might've been Oaks gave a talk alluding to I don't know if he gave a talk alluding to climate change or it was adjacent to climate change. Taking care of the environment or something. Yeah. That upset a lot of people. Hmm. Um, Because there's so many people that their perception of climate change is that it's, I mean, it certainly is politicized, but they are totally convinced that it's a hoax too. Um. And so I think if you had if you had President Nelson talk about donating tithing dollars to something that would produce more clean energy or something like that, I think there would be some members that they would feel like that's gone too far because their political view of climate change, for example, is a stronger belief than their religious belief. Mm-hmm. which isn't great. Like, I I think that it kind of goes to show you that whatever benefit religion 
has, it should, it should be like a wisdom mechanism. And if your politics are overtaking your life, then that wisdom mechanism that the religion is supposed to be providing is not doing its job. I think maybe, I don't know. I agree with that. <clears throat> Cause I, I think... do think that's a benefit of religion when it's done well. And uh, it doesn't seem to be working well. And I don't know if it's because it's not believable or what it's not updating fast enough. If it's, I, I don't know, like I can't help not believe it. Right. <laughs> And I can Jordan Peterson my way into seeing the the good in it, but I still can't participate it in the same way that I did five years ago. There's just, I can't make myself do that. And still, I, I don't know how to, and maybe there is a way and I just haven't learned how, but I just, yeah, I can't do that. But I, I was wondering like on this similar topic, like what do you think the imbalance, like, in the secular world, ex-Mormon world, there's obviously this political imbalance. So what, what do you attribute that to? I think a lot of people informed their political beliefs based on, <coughs> they informed their political beliefs based on their, their religious teachings. So for example, with regard to abortion, mm-hmm. There were some people that maybe were social. I leaned social libertarian before I was a social libertarian and an 11th article of faith kind of person. Mm -hmm. So while I wouldn't have, you know, elected abortion, I felt like it was more of a religious theological construct of when does the pregnancy become a person. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't feel like government should get involved in that before but i've seen people who believed that that at the moment of fertilization it became a person because that was their theological construct and then when they went through a faith transition um they revisited how they made that decision or how they evaluated abortion mm-hmm. and they were more likely to look at the degree to which socioeconomic factors play into the frequency of abortion with unwanted unplanned pregnancies. And that changed their political views with regard to the topic of abortion because their faith shift. Um, uh, So abortion, gambling, um, same-sex marriage, uh, people living together without getting married. When they re- when people had a moral framework that was narrated to them through a religious construct, and the religious construct crumbles, then they are, find themselves renegotiating what are the components of their moral framework, and to the extent mm-hmm. that some of them were informed almost entirely by religious theology uh, that will shift. Um, What do you think, what do you think informs an atheist conservative? Like how do they even exist then? Like, I think the the statistic like for secular atheist types, I want to say it's like 30 to 70%. So there are a minority, but there's still a good chunk of people that are, um, 
more conservative and they don't believe in a God or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you my, my personal biases and I don't self-identify as an atheist. I self-identify as a pantheist, which Richard, Richard Dawkins says is, is sexed up atheism anyway. I, I, I only use that term because it was easy. I actually don't usually throw that term out, but I, I'm yeah. using it in the broader sense of there are a bunch of people that do identify as atheists yeah. and more yeah. conservative leaning. Yeah. So um, myself, uh, I believe that where free markets function, um, that that's where more creativity and growth and things happen. And so where a market can function as a free market, I, I believe that um, it's better for to let the markets function. Mm -hmm. and, and then I believe there's some markets that really don't function well as free markets because for a free market to be a free market, there needs to be access and to information, people are making decisions not under duress, they have choices, there's competition, things like that, for a free market decision to be made. And I don't think healthcare is a free market. Like, if I have a heart attack, and I'm going to the hospital, I'm not price shopping, I'm not, mm -hmm. my decisions are made under duress, whatever it takes to keep me alive, that's what's going to be paid. And mm -hmm. And so that creates disincentives in the program in, in healthcare uh, that, that, that exist there. LASIK eye surgery can be competitive and work as a free market, right? Because mm -hmm. the decisions, there's competition, there's price disclosure, the decisions aren't made under duress. Most dentistry also can be competitive, but mm -hmm. the majority of what we spend in healthcare is not a free market. So where I believe there aren't free market, where free markets can't function, then I'm a fiscal centrist. So I'd be an advocate for Medicare for all with private insurance supplements mm -hmm. and private providers like in Switzerland. I'd be an advocate for that. Um, and then I'm a social libertarian, government stay out of your personal life. Mm -hmm. So. So I align economically where I believe free markets function. Oh, and the other thing is I mentioned earlier is that I think a lot of our problems that we have have to do with bureaucracies because bureaucracies stifle creativity, innovation, and so forth. And, and I dislike bureaucracies that are government bureaucracies as much as I dislike large corporate bureaucracies you know, in collusion as well. So I think mm -hmm. the problem is bureaucracy, whether it's government or, or business. So I would align with the conservatives economically where I believe there are free markets. That's interesting. I would say probably, oh, let's say 50 years ago. Wouldn't the whole spectrum of the United States be for free markets? but you're saying that that's making you conservative, right? This is just, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to, it's, it's fascinating to me that that's the thing that makes you conservative because to me, that's like an American thing. <laughs> um, Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. 
I think there, in, as individuals, we see dysfunctions and corruption and marginalization. Mm-hmm. And we see it in, in the bureaucracies of government. And we also see it in big business, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the question is, is what are you, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. Um, so there are people that strongly believe that public education is important to provide opportunity for people to raise their socioeconomic class and right. for us and we benefit from having an educated workforce and so forth. And there are some people who are far conservative who don't believe in public education. They believe everything should be private education, give people vouchers, they can choose where to go. And there are people on the left that think that we don't do enough in public education. Instead of K through 12, we should start when they're three years old and we should go all the way through two or four years of college. Mm-hmm. on the left. Um, and then there are people kind of in between. So I would say, I would say the conservative would say when there are dysfunctions in public education, you need to have private education to provide an offset and pro- introduce competition. Mm-hmm. But I don't want, I don't want government dollars going to religious schools because I think there should be separation of church and state. And so I would advocate for charter schools, mm-hmm. realizing that there are problems when you take funding from public schools and put them in charter schools, but there's so much dysfunction in the public schools that there needs to be competition introduced to fix some of those problems, mm-hmm. right? So that pisses off everyone because on the right, yeah. uh, I support public schools and on the left, I support charter schools too. And so, so I, I, uh, I can, I can't ever run for office because I'd piss everybody off is how I view things. So so to me, conservative means, uh, limited government control or influence of markets and businesses and things like that. To me, that's what conservative economically, that's what conservative is. Hmm. And there are some people that talk about being a classic libertarian or a classic, classical liberal, classical liberal, uh, which is different than what a lot of people attribute to conservative today. A lot of people that contribute to conservative today have influence, I think, from like the religious right, so that they're invoking those kinds of values. And with the dynamic of Trump, they're evoking nationalism into what conservatism means. And it didn't mean that before. In the past, conservatism meant free markets, not tariffs and trade wars. You know, mm-hmm. conservative conservatism in the past would have meant that we had an immigration system that wasn't broken so that we could get guest workers in uh, where we have labor force participation problems. Mm-hmm. You know, that would be a conservative approach. But what, what's happened in the U.S. and other countries is nationalism and the religious right have co-opted 
I think, uh, political conservatism, at least the meaning that I'm attributing to it. So I think a lot of non-theists, you know, would say, who are conservative, would say it's preferable to deal with a system where you're not, don't have all the bureaucracy of government controlling and micromanaging everything. Um, but then I would push back and say, you know, when fortune 500 companies collude to do things that creates just as much bureaucracy and dysfunction as when government's doing it mm-hmm. is what I would say. Yeah, I think, um, if I were to say why the things that make when I say, yeah, I'm, I'm more conservative leaning, it's small government. So it's like, you can't collude with the government if it's too small to collude with. <laughs> but example I have, so Mattel um, makes toys. And, you know, if someone comes in and says, hey, we need to have regulation on toys to make sure toys are safe and that we don't, you know, make sure we don't have uh, lead in toys and just you know we don't want people selling toys that are going to be dangerous for kids the big toy companies were the ones advocating for it because the the the, the thing that the toy has to go through to be checked off as safe costs money and that's an investment that they can make but a mom and pop toy maker can't and so that's the kind of stuff that the conservatives seeing. They're saying, oh, you want to be safe, but what you're not realizing is the unintended consequence of these big businesses being in bed with the regulators and making it easier for them to have a monopoly. So that, and, and I understand that there's the other side of that, of the monopoly, right? Like the fact that if it was just a completely like unregulated free market that you would have banks, for example, failing and then the government's needing to bail out, right? Like, yeah. like, I, like I understand that you can't just have no regulation at all, but it just, uh, it's just interesting that there's, there's seeing two different problems. Um, one saying, saying, hey, government needs to enforce these regulations to make things better and safer. And the other side saying, well, that's just making a problem worse. Like you're creating a new problem with that regulation that you just created. So you're making uh, it harder. Yeah. As a financial advisor, I see that all the time because I see insurance agents out there selling products, misrepresenting what those products will do hmm. so they can earn a huge commission that tie people up into some sort of annuity product that they don't have sufficient liquidity for what the client needs and it never performs the way it was represented to the client. And that kind of product shouldn't even be legal, you know, where an 80 year old buys something with a 15 year surrender charge and almost no liquidity, you know, and put half of their money into it. Like, Mm. wow, that is terrible. Right. That shouldn't exist. Um, So I want regulation that makes it so those products don't exist. Like Utah passed laws that 
said that kind of product couldn't have a surrender charge of more than 10 years, uh, for example. But in Montana, products with surrender charges of like 16 years still exist. Hmm. Um, um, and the other thing, like with the bank thing, to the extent that there are financial advisors out there misrepresenting and churning and not following ethical standards, they're creating a decrease in confidence in the professionalism of everybody else. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, if, if a couple regional banks fail and everybody loses confidence in their bank, even though their bank probably didn't do the things of the banks, other banks that fail, that it's a it's a problem for the system. Because if everybody runs on the bank and they redeem their deposits, then our whole financial system crashes because all that money was loaned out. You know, it's not sitting in a vault. Um, so I hate regulation. And, but my business couldn't exist without it at the same time. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, yeah, but I, I think, I think this just beautifully illustrates why you need people that are seeing the shortfalls of both sides of thinking and how you need them working together. And, um, you don't win elections by those people don't win elections. Yeah, that's true. But at the same time, like, I don't feel like that politics has really infiltrated like legislatures, state legislatures is quite as bad. Like I'm, I'm watching them pass stuff in Utah and, and it seems like, you know, you've got people in there, like the, the Salt Lake, for example, um, you've got advocates in there that are, are trying to make sure there's a voice for the, the ag users. And then you've got people in there that are obviously trying to say, okay, we've got this problem here. How can we mitigate that as well with the Great Salt Lake? And they're talking together and maybe they're just talking nice together because we had so much water this winter, but yeah. Yeah. But I, I went to a presentation on that and they were just kind of talking about how you kind of have to work this stuff out before there's the drought, not during the drought. Yeah. So I I don't, I I, I feel like politics does work at some levels. It's just, it's almost like, I don't know, at our presidential level and stuff like that. It's just, it's like entertainment at this point. Like, I don't think people can even point to like, things that Trump passed, you know, they know about all of the drama and stuff. They know more about Stormy Daniels than they know about any of the policies he actually passed. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with, with Biden, they know how many times he must spoke or they can quote word for word. One of the weird things that he said about ice cream, <laughs> I don't know yeah. what that, what it is. Yeah. Then they can actually say like what kind of policies he's been advocating for or passing or anything that Congress has been doing. <laughs> Like, it's just entertainment. Like, that's the problem. Nobody's paying attention to the stuff they should really be paying attention to. I, including me, by the way. Like, I'm part of the problem. <laughs> so, it's it's the algor it's the algorithm, right? Right, right. Yeah. And that's why I'm like, I'm wondering if 
there's conversations that can make the church better and that could help people as they have a change of belief and not feel like they have to be against the church, right? Like maybe there's a middle way that is more long-term, you know, and we're not talking about it because we're just being fed the short term thing, the not very long lasting thing. I don't know. Yeah. So when you go back to your question about content creation, you, you've, I think you've accurately identified that there's a hole in the, there's a hole to be filled with regard to what we're talking about. And what I don't know, I don't know that it'll be watched. You know what I mean? Like the eyeballs go toward the algorithm for a reason. It's not like the algorithm was created to take your attention. The algorithm is paying attention to what you're paying attention to and it's giving it to you. Like, the algorithm is based off of us and what we are choosing to watch. So it's it's really just as much as the viewer's fault as it is the algorithm's fault. Like, why are we going for that stuff? Like, why aren't we going for the more meaningful stuff? Like, it's not, does, does that make sense too? Like, Yeah, yeah. So you want to read uh, Brian McLaren's Do I Stay Christian? Or is it Do I Stay Christian? Does he talk I about that? Christian? Yeah, I mean, he's politically uh, progressive, and he talks about how politics have taken over Christian, the Christian movement, um, um, and he certainly has some valid concerns. Mm -hmm. um, but in the second half of the book, he talks about why he would stay Christian even as a not as not a literalist believer. Mm -hmm. I think you'd enjoy the book. Um, and I think, I think that the things that we're talking about, I think are the big, are the big hole. It's, it's our, this is the society of our, the fabric of our society is tearing. It's past a tipping point. We're losing conversations about shared values and shared identities. Um, it's very, very divisive. Um, the decline of religion is part of it. The polarization of politics is part of it. Um, but along the way there, I, I think they're going to be, it's not going to be the largest audience, but along the way, they're going to be people that are going to want content that from bridge builders. Have you found that it's giving you meaning too? It's not just... Like you're, it's good that it helps people too, but I don't yeah. know. Um, one story is in July, I was down at Sunstone and, and there was a man that told me he had gone through a faith crisis recently and he was in the raging stage. And before his faith crisis, he was like, he and his dad did everything together, like lived close together, did everything together. His dad was his best friend. And when he went through his faith crisis, like their relationship just totally tore apart. Uh, and, um, and his dad was constantly trying to like, you know, badger him to come back kind of thing. And this guy said, um, 
he told me, he said, uh, dad, there's this guy who gave a Ted talk about what his faith crisis was like. And I don't have the words to explain what this guy did, but he explained my experience. Would, would you watch his Ted talk? And his dad said, yes. And so he messaged the link to my Ted talk and 30 minutes later, his dad called him and said, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. Mm. And within a week, their relationship was recovered. Mm. Like my book club with my Mormon friends, but more meaningful because it was his dad. That's cool. And so when he told me that, Yeah, like part of that is for me, because I feel grateful for the opportunity to participate, that I got to do something, you know, that my life had meaning. Um, yeah. I think it's just because I attribute meaning to life as to participate in the lives of others. Um, it's a difficult question. Some of the content that I create is just for me working through things. Yeah. But some of it is, is uh, exposing a degree of vulnerability that perhaps provides words or connection to somebody else that they maybe are seeking but not finding. Sure. No, I... I'm going to give you an example of why that doesn't motivate me. I'm I'm happy when people, if, if someone listened to something I said and they were able to take it and use it and it made their life better. It, it's not that, it's not that I, like, obviously I'm very worried about creating meaningless content, right? Like I yeah. don't, I think I don't want to waste people's time. I don't want to waste anybody that's listening to this. I don't want to waste their attention because I feel like, my attention gets stolen from me so much that I'm just like, I don't want to do that to other people. So that's, that's why that matters so much to me. Um, so it's not that it's not that, but I know that there are people that give their life to religious organizations because it saved their life. You know what I mean? Like, so like that story you just told of it, helping that relationship. I know that there's stories where there's something that I believe is illegitimate and they give that. And maybe I shouldn't be upset about that. You know, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe they needed that, <laughs> but I don't think it's, there's almost like an anti thing. If I got too many people saying, Oh, thank you so much. I would start to get skeptical about whether I'm doing the right thing. Cause, cause you can, it's like a drug. Like I use this example with Bill real on his podcast. Like, if you give a drug addict more drugs, they're going to say, thank you. You know, they're going to think that they need that at that moment, but I don't want to be giving people something. And I, I'm not the judge of what it is. So at the same time, I just, maybe I just don't know, but I know, I guess I'm just floundering in the space. I'm just doing what I'm doing, <laughs> what I have I, time for. I, I don't know. I think you're being thoughtful. Um, those are all really big questions. Yeah. Yeah. But 
when I say doing it for me, I think the cool thing is being able to meet people like you and like Tony and, um, and all the people over at Torch Porch Time, like, and just connect. Like, I feel bad that the people listening can't do that at that level too. Cause it's kind of like you do, you do kind of, um, have these personal conversations and you're just like, wow, that is, I really like this, this, and this about Anthony Miller. Like, I hope I can be a little bit more like that, you know, like I just, and you can do that from just watching, but maybe they have a question they can't ask you, you know, and they, yeah. they don't have that connection to you. So, um, there's that part of that, that is probably for me. <laughs> yeah. So Maybe more, maybe as people watch more of those kinds of discussions, um, it informs how they engage with people they know personally. That's possible, and that uh, that would be a benefit, right? I, I would yeah. consider that awesome. Yeah. Um, just just one one last parting note. We can yeah. close up here. All right. I had this thought a few times, and I never said it, but you were saying like you, I talk to people and I ask them things and I keep going down that road. And one thing I've been surprised about is how willing people are to talk. Like, I think sometimes we shut down the conversation before we even start it, assuming that it's going to go a certain way. We don't give people the chance. Um, but I've, I've been, surprised and I don't it did again it kind of depends on how you're going into it I think when you're really willing to just go right in you're probably not in the right mindset but if you're hesitant to even go into the conversation my guess is that you'll probably behave better so just try it I think you'd be surprised at how well the interlocker takes it if that makes sense people are patient I think they give you the benefit of the doubt and they can sense that you're hesitant to say something, you know? Yeah. It, and, does that make and sense I, what I'm saying there? It, it does. And I actually think uh, to the extent that the conversations are either in person or on video like this, um, that's more helpful than when it's text on a social media website. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Yeah, I engage in some groups that stretch me because they are mostly people with whom I disagree. But it's helpful for me as practice because it makes me better in person is yeah. what my, my belief is. So I think there's value in the leaning into very difficult conversations across significantly differentiated beliefs uh, as practice to do better when we're in person. So, yeah, I agree with that. As long as you're practicing how you would actually behave in person and not practicing how you'd yell, <laughs> yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Like I, how to have impossible conversations. I, I probably read it twice and listened to it three times because mm -hmm. I wanted to understand street epistemology and how to engage in very, very difficult conversations. You know, I imagine, I imagine when he in the book writes about talking with like a Ku, Ku Klux Klan, you know, a white supremacist or mm -hmm. something like that. Uh, you know, I imagine what 
how emotionally charged that might be to deal with someone that's, mm. you know, is so dogmatic, but that you approach the conversation with curiosity and with tools to engage the person in a productive conversation rather than just a shouting match. Yeah. Um, I think there's value in that. At least yep. I find it. Yeah. It's definitely something that we don't have a chance to practice very much either. Right. Great. Like it's hard to do it online and text, like you were saying. Yeah. And you're told not to talk about those kinds of things at work. So you can't practice there. Yes. <laughs> and even with family relationships, like, oh man, if you could count how many relationships were strained because of like COVID, for example, I'm sure it was yeah. tons. Like we're just, yeah. we don't have the practice to have these kinds of conversations where we fundamentally disagree. Uh, yeah. It seems. And doing it over the Thanksgiving table often doesn't work out very well. Once a year is not enough. Like that no. kind of goes back to the five to one ratio that David Osler pulled into his book. And I know he got it from somewhere else and I can't remember where, but I think that I, I think that's a really true, a uh, very true thing uh, is that five to one ratio of having positive to heavy. Like I can't remember what the, and a conversation that strains you, that's hard. If you have one of those to every five, like, positive and light yeah. conversations yeah. then your your relationship can handle that yeah but if it's heavy every single time you're talking to somebody it's probably not gonna and get excited about seeing them again because it's like oh i know what that's gonna turn into <laughs> yeah so anyways you know, we need to produce more content about that i think yeah I, so i don't know it, how much of my stuff you've watched. I did a whole presentation for the good book book club on relationships across different divides. Well, it's been good talking to you. Thanks for, thanks, Marty. thanks for the conversation. Thanks for being awesome. All right. Thanks. Have a good we'll night. Mm -hmm. thanks. Bye. Bye.